Well, thank you all for coming. This is our first core class at Bible Center. It's a big deal. Friday night, well done. Clap for yourselves. We are glad that you are here. Uh, just to kind of get you ready for the night to know what to expect. Usually I do two or three pages of notes. It takes me about an hour to get through them. I think you've got 28 to 30 pages of notes in front of you. So we're going to go through kind of fast. Okay, so I'm going to try not to talk too fast. But at times it might feel a little bit like a fire hydrant. And uh, that's okay, because I spent a lot of time putting all the notes into the booklet. So even if something doesn't stick or feels a little confusing, you should be able to go back and look through it and figure that out. I'm also always available anytime after this to hang out, talk, and discuss the things that we talk about tonight. Um, we'll be planning on two breaks tonight. So we'll get about 45 minutes in. We'll do a five or six minute break. And then we get to about eight o'clock. I'll do another break, probably a 10 minute break. So if we have young parents who need to get their kids home, that's a good time for you to sneak out. If you want to sneak out a little bit early, grab your kids, totally fine. Uh, don't want them to stay up later than you want them to stay up. Uh, and then we'll go a little bit later into the night after that, not too much, uh, to finish, this, finish our time off. Uh, so up here, just so you know what you're looking at, I'm a whiteboard guy, so we're going to spend some time with a whiteboard. Uh, I will have that up on the screen. That way you can see what I'm writing. I've got books on either side of me. If you've ever been in my office, you know I like books, and I didn't want to feel lonely up here, so I brought books with me. I thought that'd be a good use of them. And uh, we're going to go over some of the different resources that are available to you to learn how to study your Bible more in depth. I wish someone would have done that with me 25 years ago, because I bought a lot of books that I don't use. Uh, I'd like you to buy books that are useful, that are the kind of the best books in each of the different categories where you want to have books. So I'm going to have these up here, so during the breaks and afterwards, you can come up here and look at the books, check them out, uh, and just kind of see if there's something you would like to purchase. So that's why these are up here. They're up here for you. When it comes to our core classes, let's talk about how they fit in at Bible Center. So everything we do here is centered around this graph. Okay, so as that pops up on the screen, uh, all this is is a representation of the gospel. We're trying to lead everyone to Christ so they might know him and be saved. And for those who come to know Christ, we want them to grow in Christ and maturity. So everything that we do at Bible Center falls somewhere on here. Okay, whether it's our outreach or it's our core classes or our worship service. So how do core classes fit in? I'm going to kind of couch it in with our other ministries. When it comes to our Sunday morning worship, that kind of falls in here. Okay? So this is for people who um, are growing in the faith, they're learning how to become faithful disciples, learning what it means to become a fruitful witness. Worship service hits there. And then we have a group's ministry. In a group's ministry... That kind of fits in here. So with Matt preaching on Sunday mornings, he can give you general application. In a group, you get to know people, and they know you, and they can take information in God's Word and apply it personally into your life. So it goes a little deeper than what you can go on Sunday mornings. After that, we offer our Going Deeper booklets, which are kind of verse-by-verse -verse studies through Scripture, and then we offer our core classes. So this is really kind of our upper end area. This is where we're really pushing you to learn how to become self-feeders. On a Sunday morning, the only goal is for someone to show up, hang out, and enjoy God's Word, and to enjoy worshiping God together. It's great for every Christian. But as we start moving up this ladder, you have to start becoming a bit of a self-feeder. 
okay? So that means it's time for you to dig into relationships, for you to dig into God's word, for you to go into studies and kind of work at it. That's what this core class is, okay? So I'm going to spend a lot of time with you up here tonight, but at the end of it, Lord willing, I'm motivating you to go spend more and more time with him when we're done. So that's kind of the heart behind this, and this is kind of how core classes fit in. As I was running yesterday and thinking about being up here with you, it just it kind of dawned on me in a way that just kind of made me slow down and think for a minute. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, the way that man fell was when God's word was just slightly twisted and they bought into a misunderstanding of God's word. When Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he came into the wilderness and the enemy shows up, what does he do? He takes God's word and just twists it just a little bit to try to get Jesus to fall. That is what the enemy has been doing from the beginning. He loves to take God's truth and reality of who God is and how he works with us and to twist it just a little bit to cause us to doubt, to twist it just a little bit more to cause us to walk away from him and misbelieve and disbelieve and get confused about what God said and who God is. So my hope tonight is that we can spend some time talking through how to make sure we're creating a fence around our Bible study that the enemy can't get in that we know what it says, we understand it, we can apply it correctly, and we can teach it correctly. So that's my hope. So let's pray together, and then we're going to jump into the material. Father, we come before you just with humility, recognizing that these are your words, and none of us here want to read it, interpret it, apply it, or teach it in a way that is incorrect. So God, we ask you to move tonight. We ask you to give us wisdom and insight, apply things to our heart, apply things to our study, Allow us to go into your word and to delight in you, to understand it correctly, to apply it correctly. Uh, God, allow this to be a night that begins to transform our church even more than you've already transformed it, to look more like you, to fall more in love with you. Uh, I look forward to tonight, Lord. I'm thankful that you're here with us. Uh, Allow us just to enjoy you as we enjoy one another. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're starting off. What we believe about the Bible. So before we talk about... How we study the Bible, we're going to talk a little bit about what is the Bible. So the Bible is fully inspired. We believe the Bible is God's words written down for us. So how did this happen? How did the Bible come to be? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So with the Ten Commandments, God actually took his hand and wrote on stone tablets. So clearly, those were God's words. He also used dictation. There were times when it just says, thus saith the Lord. And God gives the prophet exactly what he should be writing. We also see visions in the Bible with Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, where words like write in the book or write on the scroll what you see. And the author is called to write down the visions that God presents to the author. We see a recording of oral traditions So in the narratives, like Moses, when he wrote the Torah, there was a tradition of the history of what God had done with Abraham and Isaac and Esau that had been orally transmitted until the days of Moses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote the four Gospels. Some of that comes off of oral tradition. The people who heard Jesus teach had heard Jesus speak. So that's also a part of Scripture. Luke is really interesting. He talks about basically compiling information to write the book of Luke to his buddy Theophilus. Okay, so he actually goes through picking what material makes the most sense to put into his particular gospel. 
So it really sounds like human effort. But even in Luke's human effort, we believe that God oversaw the entire process. And those words in Luke are just as much God's words as the hand that wrote on the stone tablets. God used both processes and both means to produce the Bible. Uh, We see letters that were written with particular intent, with particular purpose for churches who were struggling. All these things are God's desire and design. God uses human authors on purpose, and he uses their background, their understanding, their style, their experiences, their historical situation to communicate to all of us what he wanted them to understand and for us to understand. It's really an amazing thing. So I don't want you to picture the authors of the Bible sitting there in a trance, and like the hand of God is on their brain, mushing their brain around so they write the right thing on the page. That's not really what it was. It was actually a very normal process of sitting down, compiling information, hearing oral traditions, putting them on pages, and God oversaw the process. So here, uh, Millard Erickson writes, all processes end with the same result, the God-breathed words. It is our contention here that inspiration involved God's directing the thoughts of the writers so that they were precisely the thoughts that God wished to express. So there are several things that we believe about God's word. First, we believe that it has authority. Here, a guy named Wayne Grudem says, the authority of scripture means that all the words of scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. That's what we mean when we say God breathed or plenary inspiration. Plenary means absolute. It is absolutely inspired by God. Inerrancy, all right? So this is a term that you'll hear. We believe that the Bible is inerrant. Inerrancy means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So the Bible doesn't say the the earth is flat. The Bible is true in everything that it says. Now, this idea has been under attack for a long time. But just to explain to you what inerrancy means, it includes things like truthfulness in everyday speech. So if you go into the Old Testament and it's talking about a battle uh, in the book of Samuel or 2 Samuel or Chronicles, the author may just say there were 80,000 on the battlefield. Now, there could have been 79,995 people on the battlefield, but in that day and the way they wrote, they would approximate numbers. So we don't expect them to use 21st century rules of literature when they're writing in their day. That's consistent. So if you look out, you don't see someone counting every single person on the battlefield, there's about 80,000. So we can still say it's inerrant, even though there was an approximation of numbers. That was acceptable in that day. Here's another one, quotations. So in the New Testament, you'll see Jesus, Paul, Peter, James quoting the Old Testament. Sometimes those quotations are not exact. How can that be? Because in today's day and age, you have to be exact, right? Some of you are students. If you misquote somebody, you get a red X on that paper, don't you? That's not the way quotations were used back then. To quote somebody, you just gave a general direction of what they were saying, and that's a quote. It doesn't have to be word for word. It, that wasn't the standard then. So we, we can't put the Bible and the Bible's authors under standards that we use today. It has to be based on the standards that were used in their day. And in their day, it was loose quotations. The 
original Greek text doesn't even have quotations. It doesn't even have periods. It doesn't have commas. They're all capital letters, and there's not even spaces in between the words. So it's hard to quote it, isn't it? Um, Old Testament, same way. So when you look at the original language, it makes sense that it was used and done in the way that it was done. So inerrancy also includes strange and awkward grammatical constructions. Do you remember Peter? At one point, Peter talks about Paul and says, that guy's stuff is hard to understand. Well, it was God's intention that Paul wrote the things the way he wrote them, even though for Peter, he looked at it and said, this is tough stuff. Okay, so it's okay if it's tough, tough, tough. It's okay if it's tough, tough, tough. It's okay if it's tough stuff. Uh, that was God's design. That was God's intention, and we're okay with it. Here's an interesting one. Inerrancy means more than infallible. Now, I remember in the 1980s, long time ago, I'm getting old. In the 1980s, infallible was a word that I would use a lot to describe scripture. It meant a lot. Infallible meant that it was perfect in every way. Nowadays in scholarship, infallible is almost like a way to like dig at scripture. It's almost a put down. Because what it means today is is accurate in terms of like spirituality and things that pertain to God. But in everything else, we can't trust scripture. So that's what infallible means today. So if you hear, one, hear someone say the Bible's infallible, feel free to ask them the question, would you also say that it's inerrant? Because inerrant is what we believe. It's more than just infallible. So how can we say that the Bible is inerrant when we have no original documents? Did you know that? We don't have the actual handwritten Bible anywhere. They were written on scrolls and on parchments. Like, those have disintegrated. Those are gone. So we have no originals. So what has happened through the years we've had to transcribe and, and copy onto scroll after scroll after scroll? When it comes to the New Testament, we literally have thousands of different fragments of the New Testament that we've had to put together to figure out how each book goes together and what the, what the right word is in each, each letter and each document and each narrative. Um, so there's this long process, and there's a book that I can encourage you to read at some point if you want to know more about that. Uh, but we are 99% sure that everything that's in there is exactly what's supposed to be there. When it comes to two different documents that have a different word in a particular place, Context tells us very clearly which word goes there. Uh, so if anyone ever pushes you on that and says, well, you don't even have the original copy, we have plenty to make the right decision to know what should be there. And we've made good choices. We've had people who've dedicated their lives to that process. Uh, and we can trust them in it. And we can trust God in overseeing it. Sufficiency. Let's go to the next page. Sufficiency. The sufficiency of Scripture means that the Scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Catch the second part of that again. It contains all the words we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, for obeying him perfectly. The word sufficiency means different things to different people. There's different camps when it comes to how we live out the sufficiency of Scripture. So when we say the Bible's sufficient, does that mean when you break your arm, we should go to the Bible to figure out how to fix it? No one's heads are moving. No, we don't do that. Uh, we don't. We go to a doctor. Uh, but we have the question, how do I process emotionally what's going on? Because I'm mad at God that I broke my arm. Yeah, you go to Scripture for that. Okay, uh, the Bible's sufficient. 
Is the Bible sufficient for helping me with my math homework? No, it's not, is it? Uh, the Bible's not designed for that. That's not its intention. But the frustration of dealing with your math homework, the Bible is sufficient for that. So it's important to understand what that means. Here's a hard one. What about a chemical imbalance? What about a chemical imbalance? There are people out there that would say, no matter how bad your depression is, no matter how bad your mental state is, you should never go see a doctor. The Bible is sufficient to fix your medical, mental, medical situation. Okay? I don't land there. There are some that do. And then there's others that would say, you know what? God's given us the wisdom to help create a medicine to balance your chemicals in your mind, to help you think correctly so when you go into God's word, you can read it with clarity. It's like, I live five miles from here. I don't walk here. I get in a car because God gave us the wisdom to build a car to get here. Kind of in the same way, God's given us the wisdom to have medication to get our minds where it needs to be, to get in God's word correctly and, and dig deep and not get in a situation where we can't handle the situation. Um, so that's a big deal. Uh, so those are kind of the different areas of sufficiency we have to think through. All right. A plague. So this is kind of where we're going to jump in a little bit deeper. There's a plague in Christianity, which I think is huge. The average Christian, the average Christian really is pretty clueless when it comes to how to study the Bible. That sounds mean, okay? But honestly, as you spend time listening to the radio and talking to people, there's a tendency for people just to pull out of Scripture whatever they want to pull out of Scripture. So let's talk tonight about what it means to go into God's Word to understand what God intended God's words to say, and so we can apply it correctly. Uh, here are some of the symptoms of this plague. I've experienced these, and I've done these. So if you feel like you've done these, you're not alone. I'm with you. One, much of our knowledge of the Bible comes from what we've heard about the Bible. Instead of you and I going into God's Word to find out what it says, we heard it on the radio, or we heard it in a song, or we heard it in a sermon, or where someone else taught it to us. That's just a tendency we have. Now, when we do that, here's what starts to happen. We only have a secondhand account of what the Bible said. When you're talking to someone, and they always reference, well, David Jeremiah says this, or John MacArthur says this, or I heard on the radio that. That's not a bad thing, but sometimes you want to hear people say, I read in God's word, and God's word said this. So secondhand information about the Bible is going to always leave you a little, a little, running a little short because you're going to have a selective understanding of God's word. The tendency is to turn on radio stations and sermons and go to Bible studies that you enjoy. So all the parts of scripture that are maybe hard or talking about things that you're not interested in, you miss those. You don't want a selective understanding of God's word. You want a full understanding of God's word from cover to cover. So that's the danger of just having a secondhand knowledge of God's word. We also tend to go to the Bible to meet the need of the moment. We go to God's word to meet the need of the moment. Felt needs can guide our reading. My reading plan becomes based on my need of the moment. Instead of fitting my life into God's story, I use God's story and try to apply it into my life. So the Bible becomes centered on me and my need of the moment, not me being centered around what the Bible has to say about how I should think, how I should live, what I should do, how I should interact with people. So we need to make sure that we're bending our lives around Scripture, not trying to bend Scripture around our lives. We also have a tendency to go to Scripture to get information, to win an argument. 
or we go in with an agenda. That's a tendency we have all the time. Oftentimes you go to God's word with a bias. We already have something we want to prove. So as we do that, we're focused on just certain things that we want to find out. When we do that, we're saying, I want God's word to prove that I'm right, rather than saying, I want God's word to prove that he's right. That's a dangerous place to be. Consequences of that. We can stretch the meaning and we can stretch the application of God's word to try to make our point. We do not connect our thoughts back to the whole story of scripture. The word becomes putty in our hands instead of us being putty in God's hands. We become selective, slanted, and further one-sided because we don't let the Bible speak for itself. Another symptom, we use personal experience and preferences to interpret scripture. All of us have preferences. All of us go into God's word with a particular gender. You go in as a man or as a, or as a woman. You have a set of life experiences. You have an economic status. You have a social status. You have a certain group of friends. You have a particular church you go to. We naturally go to God's word and almost everything that we read with all that determining what it means. It's very natural. But what God wants us to do is to first peel some of that stuff back and ask the question, what does it mean first? And then how does it apply to my life? Not how does my life apply to it? So sometimes we get that backwards and that can be really dangerous. Um, We also... We sometimes go to God's word simply just to increase knowledge rather than for transformation into the likeness of Christ. We start to have a classroom Christianity mindset. Uh, Sometimes I think we get confused about what spiritual maturity really is. Sometimes I think we measure it by how much we know about God's word, not how much we're changed by God's word. Not good. The devil actually knows God's word better than you do. He knows it inside and out. And it hasn't changed him at all. He's not more spiritually mature than you are. He hates God and he hates you. So just knowing the Bible doesn't necessarily change anything. It's having God's word radically change and transform who you are. That's the goal of reading the Bible. It's a wonderful thing to open God's word and start in prayer and say, Lord, cause these words to make my heart fall more deeply in love with you. God used these words to cause my heart to fall more deeply in love with the people around me. As we start going in with that heart, Lord, transform me to look more like you. That begins to change everything. Not, Lord, I just want to know more. I want to know more. You might have everything in Leviticus memorized. Great. But do you love your neighbor? Do you love your spouse? If I asked your spouse, what would your spouse say? Um, So that's a big deal. So it's not knowing every detail. It's being transformed by God's word. Because we end up basically valuing classrooms over mission when we start thinking that way. Here's the reality. Each one of us are interpreters. You may think, Mike, I just read my Bible. I just read it. I don't interpret it. Everyone is always making an interpretation of everything you read. No matter what you're reading, you come back, you come off with a conclusion of what it means. Uh, That first little paragraph says, as we read the Bible, we will always draw out a meaning and develop a personal interpretation of the passage. From this interpretation, we will discern how to apply the passage to our lives. This application will affect our lives and the lives of everyone we come in contact with throughout our day. So not only are you interpreting what you read, you're applying it to your life. 
if you apply it incorrectly, then everyone who's watching you starts getting confused at who Jesus really is. They get confused at what the Bible really says, because you might be the only Bible they're reading, and the way you live is you're expressing what the Bible says. So you want to make sure you know it so you apply it correctly for the sake of those who watch you every day of your life. And that happens all the time, even when you're not aware. So you're already interpreting everything around you. Uh, so I'm going to throw this out there, and we're going to get to this a little bit deeper in a moment. But every passage you go to, God has one intended interpretation for it. There is one correct interpretation for every passage, for every verse. There are many ways to apply the verse, but there's one correct interpretation. So if there's five of us sitting at a table, and all five of us come up with a separate interpretation of a particular verse, possibly one of us are right, and that means the other four are wrong or all five are wrong. There's one correct interpretation. There's one correct original intended purpose for that verse. Many applications. So the question is, how do we get to that right interpretation? So let's talk about how we interpret everything around us, because we're always doing it. We're always analyzing the source. We're analyzing whether or not that source has a slant, whether there has authority. What's the purpose? Is it reliable? Is it relevant? We would probably never turn on Teletubbies or Veggie Tales or an episode of Care Bears. I know some of you watch that. Uh, you'd never turn that on to get caught up on local news. Why? Well, because that is not the purpose of that show. That show has no authority. That show is not relevant for figuring out the news. What about if you turn on Fox or MSNBC? So if you turn on one of those, as you turn it on, depending on your slant, you're going to think, wow, I don't trust the sources of that particular news source, or wow, I really do trust the sources of that particular news source. You might say, that one's slanted, or you might say, that one's exactly right. This is the only true source of news. So depending on your background, you're thinking through slant, you're thinking through source, you're thinking through relevance, you're thinking through purpose. So you're doing it all the time. We also have to do it with God's word. So let's look to the next page. Uh, Here's, here's something I've just found that I think is just disturbing, is sometimes we go to God's word to find uniqueness in our interpretations, to find uniqueness. Like, we'll sometimes measure spiritual maturity by who thinks of the most interesting, unusual, unheard of interpretation of a passage. That's not always the goal. The goal is to find out what God's intention of the passage was, not a unique way to look at God's passage. Sometimes when we do try to find that unique thing, there's like a personal agenda attached to it. Or sometimes there's pride, wanting to be the first one to figure something out. And sometimes there's just a false understanding of spirituality. When we start coming up with unique interpretations, usually what is birthed out of that are cults. That's where cults come from. When you come up with an interpretation that no one's ever heard of, be nervous. You might be the, you know, the next guy starting the next cult or the next woman starting the next cult. Our goal is not uniqueness. Our goal is correct interpretation. So that is our big need, correct interpretation. All right, let's read that little paragraph after the need. The aim of good interpretation is to get the plain meaning of the text. Correct interpretation brings relief to the mind as well as a prick or prod to the heart. One of the main tools in our task will be common sense. We don't have to commit intellectual suicide to be a Christian or to live out the Christian life. 
So here are some verses which I've just seen used in very interesting ways. Uh, and let's just connect good interpretation to these verses. Habakkuk 1.5, or Habakkuk 1.5, depending on how you like to say it, uh, says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I've seen that verse on sweaters, or sweatshirts. I've seen that verse on mugs. It feels inspiring. Don't you want God to do something that amazes you? That'd be great. Until you read verse 6. Verse 6 says that God is raising up the Babylonians, and they're going to come in, and they're going to wipe you out. That's the amazing thing that's about to happen. You're going to die. And your children, and your house. I mean, everything's gone. That's the wonderful thing that's about to happen. I've never seen verse 6 on a sweater. I've never seen verse 6 on a coffee mug, okay? Uh, But verse 5 is pointing to verse 6. It is. But some people just don't read verse 6. So the interpretation comes within the context of where the verse is found. The next one. So I started with the Habakkuk one because I don't think that would hit you personally, but some of these might hit you personally. And it's only because I love you. It's because I love you. I don't know all of you, but I love you. Uh, I'm going to bring these up, and let's just, let's just be humble with one another. Um, because someone else told me this. I didn't come up with it. I, this is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Is that promise for you? The word prosper there, by the way, actually means prosper, like wealth. Like, I promise God says to make you wealthy, to provide for your needs, to give you abundance. Is that promise for you? You want it to be. I want it to be. I do. I'd love for that to be for me. But it was written to the Jewish people when they were in Babylon, and he's telling them, I have a future for you. They're right now, and they're not in their homeland. They're, they've been taken to Babylon. They're captives, and God's giving them a hope for the future. There's a day coming when I will prosper you. I will draw you back to myself. It's a particular promise in a particular time for a particular people. And it was already fulfilled. That one's done. God can check that box. So if we take that and put that on our sweater and we walk around believing that God's going to do that for me, then all of a sudden we get really disappointed when we lose our job or we get a demotion or one of our children or one of our friends is in a really hard situation financially, economically, because God promised me that he would prosper me. Is God being unfaithful? Can I still trust him? When we misinterpret God's word, it messes up our idea of who God is, and it can cause disbelief. It can cause anger. It can cause frustration. So we have to interpret correctly so that we know who God truly is and his actual promises that he's making to us. In the New Testament, we're given amazing promises. His love will never leave you. You are his adopted child forever. But this promise is for Israel at a point in time. Okay, Revelation 3.20. I've used this multiple times in evangelism. Many, many times. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Isn't that a great evangelism verse? You've just shared the gospel with them, and you just say, all you have to do is open the door to your heart. Do you hear Jesus knocking? I do. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Just open that door, and he'll just walk right in. He says so. He's going to just walk right in. Who is this verse written to? 
believers. It's not written to unbelievers. It's a nice picture for an unbeliever, and I don't think we're in a lot of trouble if we use it for an unbeliever, but that's not who it's written to. That verse is to encourage you. It's written to believers. Jesus, at any moment, every time in your life, if you start to drift away, if your love for Jesus grows a little cold, or you get enticed by something outside of Jesus to spend more time with that, to fall more in love with that, Jesus says he is knocking on the door of your heart every moment of every day. All you have to do is open up that door, and Jesus is ready to go deep with you in fellowship and community. He's there waiting for you to open the door as a Christian because it's written to Christians. Okay, now all of a sudden that verse is awesome for me as a believer. It's not just something I need to pull out of my pocket when I go to share my faith with someone. Okay, so that's a correct interpretation because that's the context in which that verse is found. So I noticed as you were all coming in, I didn't see any eye patches. So I think you've interpreted this next one correctly. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge that puppy out, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Okay? So, I've got two eyes looking at you. You've got two eyes looking at me. Why haven't you plucked your eye out yet? Jesus says, pluck your eye out. Now, we have to understand that Jesus was a master teacher. Everything he said and how he said it was done for a purpose and for a reason. He was standing in front of a bunch of people who were not going to walk away having recorded what he said on their iPhone. They weren't writing it down. They weren't taking notes. He had to say things in a way that were so powerful, so moving, that you couldn't forget it. You think that would have worked? That probably would have worked. And in that day and age, everyone wasn't carrying around a bunch of books. Jesus wasn't teaching with a table on either side with a bunch of books for them to take home with them. That He didn't get little baggies when they showed up to visit, you know, to see Jesus with information on how to read the words of Jesus. He had to speak in a way, and all the teachers of the day spoke in a way to make what they said memorable. It's called hyperbolic speech, exaggerated speech. So the people who heard this would have known not to pluck their eyes out. They would have totally understood that, but there are Christians that struggle with this. His point is take sin seriously, and you're called to do that but you're not actually called to pluck your eye out. We could talk about parables. Uh, we could talk about, there's tons of different ways that Jesus used communication that's helpful to understand in his day that we can apply it correctly to today. Well, how about this last one? Okay, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm getting personal here. So how about, okay, I saw the legs here. So Casey Leg is going to go and kick field goals for West Virginia university, right? Does he just need to really believe in this verse to make sure that ball goes through the uprights every single time? If he really believes this verse, will that ball go through those uprights every time? Isn't this promise for Casey? Isn't this promise for you every time you attempt anything that you can do it because Jesus is going to do it through you? Isn't that the promise? Have you ever gotten frustrated that maybe it feels like Christ has failed you because you couldn't do something in and through him. The context of this verse teaches you what it means. The context is Paul is saying, there are times in my life where I've had everything that I've needed and I was okay. I trusted Christ. There are times in my life when I had nothing and Jesus still took care of me. So whether I have a lot or I have nothing, it doesn't matter. I can do all things in Christ who gives me strength. 
The context is contentment. That's the context. So the best way to use this verse is to say, you know what? I've lost everything, but I can do everything through Christ Jesus because he's all that I need. That's the verse being used correctly. It's used in the context of contentment. Paul talks about in Philippians a little bit earlier that all things have become like rubbish to him. All that matters to him is knowing Christ and being known by him. That's the context of this verse. So that's how we should use it. If we use it incorrectly, we start to question God's faithfulness, don't we? If we start applying it to getting that job, if we apply it to you know, being able to successfully finish a marathon, if we apply it to whatever, and it doesn't happen, we start to question, was Christ not there for me? He promised it. Is he unfaithful? And you start questioning your relationship with him. And all that just came from misinterpreting a verse, pulling it a little bit out of context. And I've heard that taught on the radio. I've seen that on thousands of mugs, just pulled out of context and put there, telling you to believe it for anything and everything in your life, just arbitrarily. But the context teaches us that it has to do with contentment. So that's huge. That's super important. Okay? So those are just some examples. So my goal here, because we're moving to the cure, my goal here is that we start talking about how you can go into those verses and to those sections of Scripture and know whether or not you've heard it and been taught it correctly. Because maybe you haven't. All right. How are you feeling? Do we need a break right now before I jump into this? John, do you think we need a break? No? Keep rolling? All right, we're going to keep rolling. The cure. The cure consists of three vaccinations, exegesis, hermeneutics, genre. All right. My hope is eight to 10 years from now, there's some fine kids standing around me and their names are exegesis and hermeneutics. Like I want you to fall so in love with these things that we start naming our children after them. Okay. These are a big deal. If we get these, it will radically change the way we read God's word and know God and fall in love with him. Let's read this paragraph together. The believing scholar insists that the biblical texts, first of all, must mean what they originally meant. That is, we must believe that God's word for us today is, first of all, precisely what the word was to them. Thus, we have two tasks. First, to find out what the text originally meant. This task is called exegesis. Second, we must learn to hear that same meaning in the variety of new or different contexts of our own day. This second task is called hermeneutics. And third, we must recognize and understand that the genre in which each verse is found, along with all the rules of interpretation for finding out the correct intended meaning, must be understood within the genre. You don't want to read poetry like a narrative. You don't want to read a narrative like prophecy. We have to understand how each genre works together. So exegesis can, be, can basically equal then. Exegesis is what it meant to them. How did the audience understand what was written down and what they read? Hermeneutics is now. How do we take that truth and apply it to today? Genre is how. How did God choose to communicate this? Poetry, narrative, prophecy, wisdom. So shot number one to kill this plague is exegesis. The task is to read the text carefully and ask the right questions. There are two major questions we need to ask. The first one, what is the historical context? The second is what is the literary context? The purpose? The purpose is simple. To find out the, original, the author's original intent and the point of the passage. 
let's talk about historical context first. Here are some of the things we have to find out. What was the time and the culture in which the book was written? Are there geographical or topographical factors that we need to know about? Is there something major politically going on in that day? That's important to know. There are parts of the New Testament where heavy persecution is coming down on the Christians. That helps you understand why they're talking about what they're talking about. There's other situations where a church is dividing over an issue. If you don't understand that, it's really hard to know why the author is writing what he's writing and how they would have understood what was being written. The occasion of the book. Why was the book written? What was the authorial intent? Is it stated? Is it implied? Is there a problem to be solved? Is there a false teaching that needs to be corrected? Is there a false way of living that needs to be handled? What is the situation of the recipients? How will he or they re respond and view the book? What are the existing relationships between the author and the recipients? So sometimes we find that those answers within the book. Sometimes we have to go outside the book and get some information to find out what's going on in the book. Uh, but we always want to know the historical context. Literary context. Details matter, okay? Words have meaning in sentences. Sentences have meanings in paragraphs, and paragraphs have meanings in within chapters and books. If you just pull a, a verse out like we did when I went over those couple verses, we're liable to get it wrong. So you have to see how all those things work together. Details matter. Uh, even little things like commas are life and death situations. So let's eat, Grandpa. <laughs> All right, that's fine, right? What if we lose the comma? Let's eat, Grandpa. Okay, so little things can make a big difference. All right, life or death for Grandpa. So we need, we need to understand the details, but we also need to understand the big picture. Literary context matters. Okay, so the most... Imp okay, here's a good question. Let's go here. The second part of that first paragraph says, what happens when a pastor only preaches verse by verse and detail by detail? When a pastor only preaches verse by verse, word by word, all the time, the problem is, is that those verses begin to lose meaning within the overall context of Scripture. You don't want a pastor who only preaches verse by verse forever because those verses within the book start to lose this context of the Scriptures as a whole. The Old Testament has a context and major themes. The New Testament has a major context and major themes. So you want a pastor who's preaching verse by verse and also pulling up higher and talking about overall themes. Both are super important. Matt does that. We're so thankful that Matt does that. We'll spend time going over big picture things about Scripture. And because we go over those, we can go in with accuracy verse by verse at times through Scripture. This fall we're doing 1 Timothy verse by verse. And because we spent time in Acts and Luke and looking at grand themes of Scripture, we're going to be able to go in with accuracy and go deep verse by verse. Okay, so depth, true depth in knowing God's Word is going big and going little, then going big and then going little. You've got to do both to really get it and apply it and interpret it correctly. And I'm so thankful that's what we do here. Let's read this next little section together. The most important contextual question you will ever ask, and it must be asked over and over, every sentence and every paragraph is, what is the point? 
We must trace the author's train of thought, where he is coming from, where he is going. What is the author saying, and why does he say it right here? The question will vary from genre to genre, but it's always the same crucial question. What is the point? What is the point? What is the point? So it says there, there's a case study of 2 Timothy. Uh, this is just an example from my own studies where I kind of went through and I studied the historical and literary context of 2 Timothy. And I would just, I tend to write all those things down or put them on a computer and I keep them beside me while I'm reading it. So as I'm reading a book, I'll have all the historical information beside me. So I always have it as a reference point to help me answer the question, what is the point? The second shot, hermeneutics. Okay. So if you pick up a book that says hermeneutics, that is kind of a broader term. In lots of literature, in studying God's word, hermeneutics just covers all of the stuff that we're talking about. Today, we're going to kind of narrow the definition to mainly application, but you'll see it used in different ways. Uh, what is the meaning of the Bible in the here and now? Proper hermeneutics always begins with solid exegesis. Our tendency is to go into God's word and start applying it before we truly understand it. Dangerous, dangerous, okay? We want to first understand it before we apply it. Without the plain meaning of the text known, correct hermeneutics cannot be found. Readers will draw out personal applications in any way they see fit. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. It's a small little weird verse. We really don't know what it means. It talks about somebody prayed for the dead. It doesn't say you should do it. It doesn't say you shouldn't do it. But the Mormons grabbed it, and they have all these ceremonies where they pray for the dead. Okay? Bad hermeneutics. And you're familiar with the next one. When I read about this, it said, some churches in Appalachia believe... And then it referenced this. So that's us, right? Um, in Mark 16, 18, it talks about snake handlers. Now, all that Mark is doing there, he's just telling you that some people did this. Mark didn't say, you ought to do this. He didn't say that. It's descriptive. He's just describing what happened. It's not prescriptive. It's not a commandment. He's not prescribing that you do this. He's just saying someone did this. But if you don't understand the difference in how to interpret that, you can assume every time you read something that the early church did that you should do it, you're going to be playing with snakes. Okay, so you have to understand the difference. That's really important. The question there is, what is the point? Ooh, here's a hard one. So what does the Bible say about marijuana? Okay, so we're talking about trying to apply things. What does the Bible say about marijuana? I don't think it says anything about marijuana. So, <clears throat> so how do I figure out how to handle marijuana? The Bible does speak clearly about particular principles. So like drunkenness, that situation is sinful because you lose control. God said in 2 Timothy 1.7 that he's, been, he's given us a spirit not of timidity, but of power, love, and sound mind, self-discipline, and drunkenness is the opposite of that, right? Well, marijuana would probably also fall in the category of being the opposite of having a sound mind. So we would probably assume that Besides the fact that it's illegal, uh, marijuana is a bad choice, probably sin, okay? Even if it became legal, you probably still want to think through whether or not that would be a good choice. Uh, Bible principles lead us to say marijuana is probably sin. What about caffeine? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> so uh, it does alter your mood, right? I mean, it does have an effect on you. 
but it doesn't move you in a direction of losing a sound mind. It almost gives you like a more sound mind, doesn't it? Don't you feel insane until you have your coffee? Okay? So both of those are substances that can alter us, but one does it in a way that kind of goes against biblical principles, and the other one doesn't so much. So enjoy your coffee. I'm not a, we don't need to be against coffee. Uh, again, I think the Mormons are, or at least they were, even though I think they own Pepsi. Um, so I mean, like... <clears throat> So they've drawn out that you shouldn't have caffeine. Okay, so all people apply hermeneutics, whether they know it or not. And unfortunately, this is almost always the reason why churches divide, or even why denominations no longer connected to one another. Tools for good exegesis. All right. See you, Grandpa. One of the first things you need is a good, solid translation. And what's funny is, like, coming up to tonight, this is the question I've been asked more than any other. What translation should I read, Mike? What translation should I read? So let's take a minute and talk about it. There's different types of translations. My ultimate answer is going to be, you should read multiple translations. Sorry. So I mean, you're not going to like that. So, I mean, just get a backpack, stuff them all in your backpack, you know, and head out to Starbucks to read your Bible. Um, I actually do that. But I'm joking with you. Just get it on an app. But multiple translations is the best choice. But what is the difference between translations? On one end, you have a, a word-for-word translation. That would be your King James. That would be your New American Standard. You also have a like phrase-to-phrase translation. you'll find that word-to-word translations are wooden and they seem awkward because the goal is just to take like, the word in Greek and then just put the word in English right under it as closely as possible. So I lived in Mexico for a while. Like you and I would say, we have a blue house. In Spanish, they say, I have a house. Blue. Isn't that weird? I mean, you start talking like Yoda. So you start... So word-for-word going from Greek to English or Hebrew to English can start feeling a little bit like Yoda talk. Uh, So they do their best to not make it that way, but phrase-to-phrase is different. They just automatically, you know, house blue, they just know, they flip it, blue house, because that's how we talk. That's more of a phrase-by-phrase way of thinking. So here we've got an ESV, which is right about here, and then we've got our our NIV right there. So this is kind of like the order in which it becomes more thinking in terms of phrases. The next one would be a thought-for-thought And I gave you room there in your nose to record all this if you'd like to. So thought for thought. And this is where we move into like our our New Living Translation. I'm sure some of you have seen that. And sometimes, like if you're teaching kids, this is a great translation. Because it just kind of takes just the whole idea and just kind of rewords it in a way that's really easy for us to understand. And if you go all the way to the end, a fellow named Eugene Peterson put out the uh, translation called The Message. Like if you read through the Psalms, it'll say those fat cats and says stuff like that where it's funny to listen to a 70-year-old man try to give us an up-to-date English version when he's already 70 and he's already like past up-to-date language. So we read about the fat cats and all that kind of stuff in the, in the Psalms and the message. Um, but that's like the intention and heart behind the message is more of a thought for thought. Okay. Let's go ahead and just take this into a practical way of looking at which... What makes the most sense to use? 
Let's go back to Spanish. I'm use my purple pen. Me falta dos pesos. Those of you who speak Spanish, this is a sad situation. Um, if I'm thinking word for word, this looks like I lack two pesos. Okay, that's word for word. If I'm going phrase to phrase, and I live in Mexico, this is what it actually means. Can I borrow two pesos? People don't just walk around in Guadalajara and say, just so you know, I, I lack two pesos. <laughs> they don't talk like that, right? When they tell you that, they're telling you that because they want you to give them two pesos. Okay, so this is more your phrase to phrase. So which one is actually more accurate to what they're trying to communicate? In this case, this is. Okay, so let's go message version. Dude. <laughs> give me two bucks. Okay? <clears throat> so those are like your three different ways of translating that. All of them are kind of accurate. Okay? And some of them are more helpful depending on the context and the people you're talking to. So this is exactly what it means, word for word, but this is what you're actually saying when people hear you say it when you're in Mexico. Okay? So that's kind of a way of thinking about that. Me falta dos pesos. Um, all right. A next good thing to have is a good Bible commentary. Let's move to the table. All right. <clears throat> so... I'm going to hold this up, and you're not going to be able to tell at all what I'm holding up. Stephen, should I do this? Boom, look at that. The Word Bible Commentary. I'm not going to do this again. This is terrible. I'm just going to do it once. The Word Bible Commentary. Uh, this is by Walvard and Zuck. Uh, you have notes where you can write that down. The Word Bible Commentary, Walvard and Zuck. This is the whole New Testament in one volume. There's also a complementary Old Testament volume. This is just a great little way to get uh, like a quick insight on a verse. Now, so that's the New Testament. There's other places you can go to commentary series where the, just the New Testament is from this end of the table to the very end of that table. That's a lot more work to find out the information you're looking for in that verse. Those sets are beautiful and they look good on your shelf, but this is actually really helpful if you just need a quick answer. Another good thing to have is a, I think what says, what's next? Bible dictionary. Within your Study Bibles, you guys have study Bibles, probably a lot of you. There's kind of a dictionary that exists within your study Bible, either at the end of it or in the notes underneath your text. If you want to go a little more in depth, this is a really good one. It's called the New Bible Dictionary. Howard Marshall, Howard Marshall. Notice it's as big as your Bible is, if not bigger, because it goes more in depth. If you want to read a whole bunch about Palestine, Samaria, the Jordan, Logos, the book of Nehemiah, Paul, predestination, resurrection, on and on. There's multiple pages about each, each subject in this dictionary. This is really, really helpful. Uh, probably my favorite thing to use, and I use this every single time, is called Nelson's Complete Book of Bible Maps and Charts. Okay, this one is excellent. Within three pages, I know you can't, well, some of you can see this. See, this is why you need to be in the front row. Um, <clears throat> it'll give you just like one big chart that kind of just outlines the whole book. And literally, you can glance at this chart, and within just moments, you get an idea of what the book's about. This is really helpful. I use this every time I go in to start studying a book. I use this first. 
And I always start there. That's a wonderful tool for exegesis. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about these hermeneutical rules of thumb, and then I'm going to give you a, a break. So we're going to get through this next page, then we're going to take a break. Uh, <clears throat> so whenever we share comparable particulars with the first century setting, God's word to us is the same as God's word to them. So anytime you see a situation where like, what they're dealing with is super similar to what we're dealing with, it's really easy to do hermeneutics. If we're struggling with division within the church and we go to the book of 1 Corinthians, it's really easy to apply his principles there. Okay? When we're talking about you know, like the marijuana question, that's a little bit more difficult. We have to like, think through some principles to get us to a conclusion. So it takes a little bit more work when the particulars are not as comparable. Next point. When the particulars are not as comparable, there's usually a clear principle articulated that is not, give, that is not given as a rule of law or command, but will be applicable in comparable situations. Road rage, there's your marijuana, public education. Like you have to make decisions on where your kids are gonna go to school. The Bible doesn't say go to public school, homeschool, go to Christian school. It doesn't say. So you have to read God's word and try to pull up principles to help you make those decisions with your family. Road rage, okay, the Bible doesn't talk about road rage. Just because it doesn't talk about it doesn't mean that you can just rage. All right. So uh, you have to take principles of, about being kind, about being loving, and apply those to your road rage. Uh, third point it is important to be able to distinguish between principles and direct application. This is huge. It's important to be able to distinguish between a principle and direct application. Direct applications would include no sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, lying, stuff like that. Principles would be like. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to be submissive to one another. A little bit farther in that chapter, it talks about husbands and wives and how God's called us in different roles of submission there. But in that verse, it's not talking about gender. It just says all of you, brothers to brothers, brothers to sisters, sisters to brothers, we're supposed to live in submission to one another. So it's a little trickier there to figure out how to live out that principle. And we might come to different conclusions in how to do that. That's a more difficult one. Or where it says, love your enemy. Like, how far do you take that? Like when Jesus says, when you get socked on one side, turn your cheek, is that like the plucking your eye out thing? Or are we really supposed to turn our cheek? So there's some situations that are a little bit harder to figure out. So it takes more time. It's good to have that conversation in community. Uh, it's good to think about that principle and where it's found in other places within scripture. And it's also important to do the fourth point. Use clear passages to help us, to help us when passages seem unclear. Clear passages give you direction to how to handle the unclear passages. There are unclear passages, and they're difficult. So use the ones that are clear to help you navigate those. Next column. One must recognize the difference between key concepts and peripheral concepts. Key concepts are gospel basic concepts. Like if it's a, if it's a topic where if you were to choose to pull it out or say it's not important, and then the gospel just tumbles in on itself— that is a key component. That is a key concept of Scripture. It's a conviction-level concept in Scripture. Uh, when it comes to something else like speaking in tongues or the way we do communion or how often we do communion, that's a peripheral thing. They're important. And we have to have discussions about them, but it's okay to differ on those things. There isn't clarity. It's not essential. But some things are essential. They're key concepts, and they have to stay there. Those are the types of things that we die for. One should be able to distinguish between what the New Testament itself sees as inherently moral, 
and what is not inherently moral. For example, there are the different sin lists of what you should never do, uh, lust, murder, those types of things. We should never to do those. But then there's other things that are talked about that are a little bit more difficult, like the Bible talks about foot washings. Do we still do that? Do we need to do that? Should we do that? Should we not do that? It's just it's a harder topic. Or women teaching, okay? The Bible gives some standards there, but the women are supposed to teach other women. Uh, can a woman teach and have one man in the room, no men in the room? I mean, it's, it's a more difficult thing. It isn't inherently immoral for a woman to teach. The question is, how has God designed us and when should she teach? So there's a difference between things that are inherently immoral and things that are kind of based upon principles and things we have to figure out together, things that aren't inherently right or wrong. Uh, one must take special note of items where the New Testament has a uniform and consi- consistent witness and where it reflects differences. Marriage. Does a single person have to get married? Paul says no. And then he says, but if you're burning, probably, you should. So, so there's some freedom there to choose to get married or not to get married. And there's consequences determining on which decision you make. Uh, divorce. There are some biblical reasons for divorce. Uh, but you don't have to choose to do it, even if your spouse commits adultery. You don't have to give them a divorce, but the Bible allows you to. So how do you make that decision? That's difficult. It's not as clear. There's differences of opinion. Drinking. The Bible says don't get drunk, but not one place does it say don't have one drink. But for you, it might be best not to have one drink, or it might be best for you to have one drink. I mean, there's, there's a difference. And within this room, there'll be 10 different answers to that question. And that's a hard one. But the question is, where's the Bible clear, and where's the Bible give some gray area? where it's not quite as clear. Uh, The last one says, gray areas must be allowed to remain gray. That's hard. It's so much easier just to draw new lines. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. That's what the Sadducees did. It's hard to live in a gray area. So when it comes to alcohol, tongues, dancing, gambling, what you do on the Sabbath, do you mow your lawn on the Sabbath? Do you go out and hang out with friends on the Sabbath, or you just stay in your house and just relax and rest all day long on the Sabbath? Like, what do you do? What does the Bible tell you that you should do? What parts of the Old Testament still need to apply today and which ones don't? Uh, when it comes to dancing, do you, are you okay with dancing? You're not okay with dancing? Why? Some of these areas are just flat out gray. The Bible doesn't clearly state you have to land here or you have to land there. There's a space in which you can have some freedom. And you have to live in that gray area. But it's so much easier just to draw lines. Why just, I won't have a drink. I'll just dance with my wife. I was going to say someone else, but I can't think of anyone else. Just my wife. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to gamble once a week. Or whatever your lines happen to be, there's this tendency just to draw particular lines and live by them. Because gray is more difficult than lines. So we're always heading towards lines. But... Gray areas need to remain gray. Let's look at these couple verses at the bottom, and then we're going to take a break. So of these two verses, now both of these verses are commandments, by the way. These are both commandments. Which one do we, do we apply, and which ones do we not? 2 Timothy 4.13 says, When you come, bring the cloaks that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Have you done that? It's a command. It's in Scripture. Have you done it? Well, no, because it clearly doesn't apply to you. There's a, there's a context there. Uh, Timothy knows where these parchments are. He knows what 
Paul's talking about, and, he knows he's, and Paul knows he's going to see him soon. So on your way, grab those books, grab those parchments, grab my cloak, I'm cold, I'm in a cell, bring them with you, please. The next one says, 2 Timothy 2.3, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Hopefully you do obey that one, because contextually that's to all believers. That one was really easy. I just, I pitched you a, you know, a real slow softball there, but they're not always that easy. The situation there is that the context and the situation historically helped us understand each verse and each commandment. These next passages are a little bit more difficult. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair is a disgrace to him? Every rendering of Jesus I've ever seen has long hair. Okay? We don't have any Polaroids of him, but every picture, every rendering I've seen, he has long hair. Adam in the garden, was there a razor? His hair probably grew long. Did the Lord just look down on him and just say, how disgraceful. How disgraceful that he hasn't cut, they haven't, they haven't invented a razor yet and he hasn't cut his hair yet. Um, so contextually, Paul has something in mind there. Is that an eternal thing that Paul's talking about, that forever and ever it's a disgraceful thing? Or was it more in context of his day and this city and a situation? And that's not an easy answer. So it takes some time and some research to think through it. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Or another translation says she must have a quiet demeanor. So how much of that is an eternal forever principle, and how much of that is the context of what was happening in that church, in that day, at that moment? Again, I'm not going to answer that for you. That would take a long time, and, and I might be wrong. That was a hard one, um, but I want to recognize that some of these are really difficult. Don't just gravitate to what you've been told. Do some research. Use these tools. Come to conclusions. That's really important. We are responsible for the interpretations we have of God's Word. Okay, we're going to take a break. I'm going to give you, wow, it's almost 8 o'clock. I'm going to give you 10 minutes. So let's get back here about a little after 7.50, and then we're going to jump into genre, which is probably the most fun that we're going to have tonight is genre. So you're going to be really excited about coming back. So take a couple minutes. We have a little food back there. We have some caffeine, no marijuana. Um, <clears throat> so grab some, use the bathroom. You can come up here and look at these books if you like. See you in a few. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started again. So if you would, grab your seat. Our next conversation is about genre. I found this really nice video put out by the Bible Project, and they spend about, in, within five minutes, they discuss all the different genres that are found in Scripture. So I'm going to let this video do it, because it's really effective, and then we're going to talk together about how to actually interpret the different genres. So let's watch this video together. The Bible is a collection of many books, telling one unified story from beginning to end. But all those books were written in different literary styles. Yeah, think of it like walking into a bookstore where every aisle has a different kind of literature. There's history or poetry or nonfiction. And when you choose an aisle and pick up a book, you're going to have very different expectations, different things that you're looking for. Right, they're all literature, but they communicate in really different ways. Yes, and so the same thing is true for the Bible. If you don't pay attention to what style it's written in, you will miss out on the brilliance of each book. So what are the main types of literature in the Bible? 
Well, first and foremost is narrative. It makes up a whopping 43% of the Bible. After that is poetry, which is 33% of the Bible. And then there's what you could call prose discourse, which makes up the remaining 24%. Nearly half the Bible is narrative. Yes, and this is no accident. Stories are the most universal form of human communication. Our brains are actually hardwired to take in information through story. And stories are really enjoyable. Why is that? Well, stories train us to make sense of the seemingly random events that happen in life by taking those events and then putting them in a sequence. And then together you can start to see the meaning and purpose of it all. And what links this all together? Well, good stories always have a character who wants something. And then through these characters, an author can explore life's big questions like who are we or what's really important in life. And a good story always involves some kind of conflict. Some challenge to overcome, just like in our own lives. And that forces us to think about our own challenges, why there's so much pain or disappointment in the world, and then what can we do about it? And stories usually end with some kind of resolution, giving us hope for our own stories. Since these are Bible stories, are the characters showing me how I should live? Yeah, that's not quite the point. Most Bible characters are deeply flawed. You should not be like them. But we are supposed to see ourselves in them, which helps us then see our lives and failures from a new perspective. And without even realizing it, these stories will start to mess with you and change how you see the world and other people and yourself. Now, there are different types of narrative in the Bible. Yeah, there's historical narrative, but also narrative parables, short biographical narratives like the four Gospels. We'll look at all these in later videos. Okay, next up is poetry, which honestly, I don't read a lot of. Yeah, you're like most people. But one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. Yeah, why so much poetry? Well, poems mainly speak through dense, creative language, linking together images to help us envision the world differently. Poems use lots of metaphor to evoke your emotions and your imagination. Lots of fancy language, but wouldn't it be easier just to tell me what I need to know? Well, think about it. In life, we tend to form mental ruts, and we think in these familiar, well-worn paths that are very hard to get out of through logic or reasoning. And what good poetry does is force you off the familiar path into new territory. Sneaky. And there's different types of poetry in the Bible. There's lots of types of songs or psalms. There's the reflective poetry of the wisdom books and then the passionate resistance poetry of the prophets. Okay, the last big literary type is called prose discourse, and it makes up a quarter of the Bible. Yeah, these are speeches, letters, or essays. And the focus here is building a sequence of ideas or thoughts into one linear argument that requires a logical response. Like, hey, have you thought about this thing? You should also consider how it connects to this other thing. And if you do, then you will see that this is the result. And in light of that conclusion, therefore, you should probably stop doing that one thing so that this other thing will be the outcome. So you're persuading me with reason. Yeah, discourse forces you to think logically and consistently and then do something about it. Biblical discourse is found in law collections, in wisdom literature, and the letters written by the apostles. Okay, so each book of the Bible has one literary style. No, actually most books have a primary literary style, like narrative, for example. But then embedded in the narrative, you'll come across poems or parables or a collection of laws. Every biblical book is a unique combination of literary styles. And to read that book well, I need to be familiar with each literary type and how it works. Yeah, so you know what to pay attention to and what questions you should ask. But before we look at each type, there's one more 
unifying feature of biblical literature that's really important and really cool. And that's what we'll explore next. So the Bible Project has this incredible website. <clears throat> it does a great job just like summarizing particular books of the Bible. So they also have videos where it just does all of the book of Psalms, all of the book of Proverbs in like five minutes and kind of does all the stuff that I'm talking about, the whole exegesis piece. It does some of that for you in the form of a video. So the Bible Project is not sitting on this table, but it'd be a great thing just to have as a resource. It's really helpful. Like, that was great. I'm not sure why Moses was so incredibly buff in that video. I mean, he was huge, but uh, so that might have been wrong. But the rest of it was really good. <clears throat> the genre stuff that we're going to talk about next, I get most of it from this book right here. It's called How to Study Your Bible for All It's Worth by Stuart and Fee. So I don't see anyone writing that down. This is a really important book. So I would write this book down. It's called How to Study Your Bible for All It's Worth by Stuart and Fee. So a lot of the stuff that we've covered tonight comes out of this book. So this is a great book to have on your shelf to go a little deeper. Because I'm going to, in a paragraph, go over what they go over in a chapter. And the chapter is much better than my paragraph. But for time's sake, we're just going to do it paragraph form. Uh, narrative. Let's talk just for another second about narratives in general. The video alluded to this, but let's just go another step with it. God has designed you as a logical being with, with your mind seeking wisdom and it likes reasoning and logic and sequential thoughts. But God's also designed you as an emotional being where you are actually moved and you have feelings, whether they're good feelings or negative feelings, whether it's despair or elation. There's a whole gambit of things that you experience because God designed you to have those experiences. So poetry is also there because God wants to honor all the different aspects of who he's created you to be. He wants to move your mind so that it falls more in love with him, but he wants to move your heart so that you fall more in love with him emotionally as well. He wants your, your intellectual passion for him to go up, as well as your heartfelt passion for him to go up. So using the different genres speaks to different parts of who you are. We reflect God's image. He is emotional. He is logical. He is both perfectly. We are imperfectly both, but God speaks to all parts of us. So you might have a particular genre that you don't enjoy, you might not like the Psalms. Uh, just too flowery. You don't get it. Most likely, that's where you need to spend the most time. Because perhaps that's the part of you that needs to be developed the most. Because God's designed you for both. And both are beautiful. We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind. All right. Hermeneutical rules when it comes to genres. Different hermeneutical rules apply differently to the different genres. A genre refers to a type of literature. <clears throat> so there's different genres that might pop into your mind. The video discussed several of them. There's others that exist in our day. We might have fictional literature, non-fictional literature, documentary-type literature. We might have science fiction or horror. Those are also genres. So what happens if you read an instructional booklet like poetry? What if you get your rules mixed up and you apply the wrong rules to a particular genre? What might happen? An read an instructional booklet like poetry. Whatever you just made probably isn't going to go together very well. When I was in college, I liked books back in college too, and I ran out of room on my shelf, so I went out to Walmart. I think I was on my bike. I think I was on my bike. I think I carried that thing all the way home on my bike. And I got home, <clears throat> and when you're in college, you don't have a hammer 
but I had a pan. So, <clears throat> so I pulled out all the pieces, and I'm in college. I'm not going to read the instructional booklet. So I put it to the side. I can put together shelves. So I get my pan to show you how amazing I am, and, and I pound the thing together. And when I'm done, you know how a bookshelf has its two little legs, and it has like a shelf and up, and somehow the legs were on the top of the bookshelf. So sometimes how I had built it so that, that, I don't know, like it was like upside down, but all the right pieces were facing. It was not what was intended for the bookshelf to look like, but honestly, it was amazing. Like it, it created a whole other shelf because it worked as bookends. <clears throat> But if you apply the wrong rules to the wrong genre, you can get all messed up. Uh, If you read a sci-fi novel like a historical document, you get messed up. God uses genre with intentionality. He uses it to communicate the breadth of his character and the depth of our relationship with him. God appeals to our reason and our imagination, to our logic and to our passion. He speaks to the minutia of life, and he also speaks to his great plans for the ages— incorporating both our mind and our senses. God desires to use all those things and to touch us deeply through all of those means. So the first genre I want to talk about is Old Testament narrative. I find we make a lot of mistakes when we're reading about Samson and David and some of those people. Think of it as a three-layer cake. You have a really good-looking three-layer cake there. And (laughs) I I don't know if you noticed those little bitmoji the girls decided to put bitmojis of me in there. That's like a 25-year-old version of me. I have more wrinkles than that, and my hair has a lot more gray in it than that. But I do appreciate that, and I do eat cake periodically. Um, but as you're thinking through the three-layer cake, every time we go into the Old Testament, there's three things that we have to think about. There's three layers to every story. The top layer, the biggest layer, is God's redemptive plan for history. God is always the Old Testament hero. Not Samson, not David, not Daniel. God is the hero. So at the end of every story, if there isn't some sort of response of, God, you are awesome, you've probably misread the story. God is the hero. So the top layer, the first thing we think about is how does this story communicate God's character and God's redemptive plan of the world? It's like his macro grand narrative story. The second layer is about the history of Israel. Every part of the Old Testament is pointing towards the intention that God has for Israel, the purpose he has for Israel, and where Israel is in that period of time in history. So that's the second layer. The third layer, the bottom layer, are the details of particular stories. Okay? Why were Esau and Jacob so mad at each other? Okay? That, those are the details, the minutia, um, different relationships, things that happen, conversations that take place, relationships. Those are the particulars. Uh, David and Goliath, how many stones he put in his bag, how many times he swung it around before he hit him. Those details are important, but they're important in light of Israel's history. They're important in light of God's redemptive plan for the ages. So we have to view all those three pieces, those three layers together as we're making interpretive choices on what things mean. So the details speak to the grand scheme of things, and the grand scheme of things speak to the details. We always have to be going up and down through the layers of the cake. So narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened or what ought to have happened. They just say what did happen. Therefore, not every narrative has a moral story. Wow. So the early childhood people here just, that probably felt like a punch to the lip. Um, Because everything that we've learned when we were kids were, be like David, be like Samuel. 
That is not the actual intention of the Old Testament. Like the video said, you, there's things in Daniel's character in life that you would like to be like, but there's plenty of things that you shouldn't be like. So they're not held up for us as role models. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 says, these are examples of what not to do. They drifted and they were evil. Don't be like the people in the Old Testament. Okay, that's, that's the biblical reason for why we shouldn't hold them up as role models. The Old Testament teaches us sometimes through those characters what not to do, not what to do. Gospels, next page. So the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the same story written from different angles, using a ton of different genres. Within the narrative, there's parable, there's hyperbole, there's simile, there's metaphors, poetry, questions, irony, even prophecy jumps in and out of the Gospels. So it's kind of like this. It's like... Like, say there's four of us, we're seeing different places in the parking lot here, and two cars run into each other in the parking lot. We all see it. You might record it one way. Now, I'm standing at a completely different angle when the wreck happens, so I would talk about it a different way. You were standing behind a tree when it happened, so you had to peek around, and you saw it a different way, and you wrote down your example of how you saw it. To get a complete picture of the car wreck, it's really helpful to see it from all four angles. That's kind of how the Gospels work. Uh, It's... Four people telling the same story with different points of view and with different purposes. Also, this is, these are things that were passed down orally. Like I said, there wasn't anybody writing down Jesus' words as he was saying them. There was an oral tradition that took place okay, that moved to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some things were written down and some things weren't. So they had to go out and learn and talk to people and record things as they learned things. Um, So, same stories told in a different way. Luke, for example, tells us why he wrote Luke. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, it says he wrote down his gospel in order to give an orderly account to Theophilus. That was his purpose, to create an orderly account of what happened. John says that these things have been written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's in chapter 20, verse 31. He had an evangelistic mindset when he wrote John. So as he was deciding what to put into John... And John is totally different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. Just completely different information. But he chose that information because he wanted to communicate to someone who didn't believe why they should believe. There was intentionality in what he put in there. Um, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. The Gospels were recorded in Greek. Jesus' words were passed on verbally before they were recorded. So it was difficult. These guys had to put in a lot of work to get things down accurately and get it down well in an organized fashion. Parables. Think of a parable like a story or like a joke. There's one main point. There's like a punchline to a parable. So the story could be short or the story could be long, but Jesus knows the audience and what's happening, what's taking place. He's trying to drive home a singular point. So he'll use things that are taking place in everyday life, situations and circumstances that that group would understand. And then he works them through the story, and at the end, there's a punchline. Okay, that causes one aspect of the group, part of the audience to go, oh, wow, that hit me right here, and they'll never forget it. So if you go back into church history, like Augustine and some of those other people, they would go to the, the prodigal son or the good Samaritan and start trying to pretend like everything that was in the parable had meaning, like the coinage that the, the good Samaritan gave you know, gave the guy to pay for the needs of the person who was hurt. 
Those coins represent communion and something else and something else. That is not the point. The point is that every detail is moving towards the punchline. Okay? Why? Because Jesus knew people weren't writing it down. So a story communicates a main point, a punchline which is memorable. That's how parables work. That's what was intended for them to hear. That's how we should also hear it. Poetry, or prophets, let's go there first. Prophets are both forthtelling and they're foretelling. They are covenant enforcers. I like that. Like, like imagine SWAT on their back. It just says covenant enforcers on their back. Uh, a covenant is what God had between him and Israel. It's like a marriage covenant. Like he's committed to Israel. He's committed to these people. And every time they start to wander from, start wandering from God, becoming unfaithful to God, God brings a prophet on the scene and basically pulls out his gun and says, you need to bring it back. You know, I'm using the SWAT illustration. You, know, you need to bring it back. He's a covenant enforcer, letting them know that they're erring too far to the left or too far to the right, and they need to return to the God who loves them. They spoke from God to man regarding blessings and curses based upon whether they're keeping or forsaking their covenant with God. There are also times when they're foretelling of a day yet to come. Sometimes they're talking about the day when Jesus was to come. Sometimes they're talking about a day that's yet to come. It's really a good idea to grab some good commentaries if you want to go deep in the prophets. They are difficult. And is, there's still several sections that we're not totally sure what they're talking about, okay? And we're just not going to know. Well, it's something to ask Jesus when we see him face to face. Poetry. So there are many types of psalms. This summer, we're going to go through psalms that are laments, psalms that are based on vengeance, psalms that are psalms of despair, psalms of despair where there's a little bit of a hope at the end, and there's a couple psalms where there's no hope. Like they just feel like God has just stepped on them and kicked them and tossed them in a pit and left them to die. And they communicate to that to God and they just leave it there. There's also psalms of hope and praise and excitement and joy. It's a guide to worship. Uh, the psalms give us the ability to learn how to relate to God. Sometimes a psalmist will say something that's been in my heart, but I didn't know how to say it to God. The psalm will help me communicate with God and talk to God in a way that maybe before I didn't know how to do. The psalms teach us that God is big enough to handle you no matter how, no matter how angry you are at God, no matter how angry you are at the people around you, God can handle it. No matter how much you are questioning him, no matter how much you're doubting him, the psalms teach us you bring all that to God. He knows it's there. Talk to him about it. The psalms are amazing in what they say to God sometimes. I'll read a psalm and say, I would never say that to God. But those words are inspired from God, through man, to God. You can go ahead and talk that way. It teaches us things that sometimes we're afraid to even say, and it allows us to understand what's okay, and that God really is big enough to handle you, no matter how sad, angry, or frustrated you are. Wisdom literature, so mainly the Proverbs, they function as practical advice, not promises. If you do this, then this will happen. That's a typical way of you know, reading a, a proverb. That's how they're oftentimes communicated. If you do this, then this will happen. You need to think of that in the way they thought of it. View it as a likely outcome, not a promise. Okay, It's a likely outcome, not a promise. If you hold every parable as a promise, you're just going to go through life very disappointed and very confused. Revelation. Here's an easy one. 
So apocalyptic literature, uh, though this is a rare form of literature today, like there aren't a lot of apocalypses written today, back in the day when that was written, there were dozens of well-known apocalypses recognized by both Jews and Christians alike. Like it was a, people wrote about this. Now, only Revelation was inspired by God, but people wrote about the end days. So there was actual, an actual genre which this was located in. And in that day, it was recognized as highly figurative. It was written for encouragement. Visions are oftentimes best seen as holes, communicating a singular message like a parable did. We must tread with humility, and we must speak with open hands if we try to drill down way, way, way deep into the details of Revelation. There are many differing opinions on the book of Revelation. It's just a book we need to hold saying, God, I, it might be this. It might not be this. In humility, I pray that you just give me wisdom as I speak. So it's a great book. We're called to read it. We're encouraged by it. We're blessed by it. But just recognize that it might turn out a little differently than we expect. There's really brilliant people that land in very different places on how to interpret Revelation. The law, covenant stipulations. So all of the Old Testament law is still a beautiful thing. It's beautiful. Why? Not because you're called to obey every aspect of the Old Testament law. In fact, God in many cases says those don't apply anymore. When it comes to the food stipulations, Jesus said, you know, or Paul said, you don't, you don't need to worry about those anymore. Some of the laws are renewed in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5 and 6, Jesus goes through the Ten Commandments and says it's not just your outward behavior that we're discussing in the Ten Commandments, it's your inward heart and attitude and thoughts that we need to discuss as we're talking about the Ten Commandments. He actually goes deeper with some of those laws. But every law, regardless of whether it's still for today or it's not for today, points to the character of God. Every law points to the character of God. So we always have the ability to learn and grow in our love for God as we read the law of God, which is a great thing. Uh, I have all those different types listed. I'm not going to go through those. Uh, you can read those on your own. Uh, application. We might use this information. Okay, this is, this is a good point. So as we start giving you tools to do proper exegesis and rightly apply things, and maybe this is just me. This is what I did. Next thing you know, I became little Mr. Expert, and I would love to just point out everyone's flaws. That's not what Philippians 4.13 says. That's not what it means. You become a little brat. Don't become a little biblical brat, okay? There's just a tendency to do that. Or you'll be listening to the radio, and you start correcting everyone who's on the radio. I'm glad that you're learning that knowledge. I'm glad that you're trying to be able to decipher you know, what's a good interpretation and what's just a false interpretation, but just be humble Realize that we also have more to learn. Um, I don't want to be up here during my next sermon watching all of you going like this at me. So let's, let's just love each other and help each other and have good discussions, and we'll try not to point too many fingers. Um, so use this to grow yourself and to benefit yourself. Don't use it as the new you know, thing that you get to make fun of with everyone else around you. Another application, take another look at your own convictions. Do they come from rightly dividing and understanding God's word? How can you help those around you to better understand and teach and apply God's word? As you start to apply some of these things to your life, how can you help the people around you understand these things? I spent a lot of time on those materials so that as you leave here, you can go back over them if there's something you didn't understand. You also can use those to teach others. 
That's intentional. I want you to use this. I want this to be something that you have the ability and skill to do and to eventually teach. Last point was evaluate your time in Scripture. Does your present plan of action, your present reading plan, allow you to grow in correctly understanding what you're reading? Is there an exegesis piece to what you're doing? Are you rightly understanding it? Do you understand what the original intention was before you begin applying it to your life? Okay, here's kind of a summary. Misconceptions about genres. Just kind of reiterating a couple things. Proverbs are not promises. Fallacy two. The Old Testament gives us real-life examples of men and women who walked with God. No, many of them are not models for us. We can't make them out to be models. We learn good things and we learn bad things from each and every person. We use New Testament eyes to study and watch the people in the Old Testament. Fallacy three. The Old Testament is full of allegories and deep, hidden meanings. No, no, they're... They're always pointing to the nation of Israel and to the glory of God. And the glory of God and the history of the nation of Israel is giving you insight into what's going on in the particulars within the Old Testament. Fallacy 4 is another good one. The book of Acts is a model for the church. There are great things in the book of Acts, the book of Acts that we should be doing. And you see things happening in the early church that is then confirmed by Paul and confirmed by Peter and confirmed by James and the author of Hebrews later on in the New Testament. But Acts is a descriptive book. Luke's goal was to be a historian, to give an orderly account of what happened. So it's a history of what happened, not a description of how every church should function from then on. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. That's really important. Okay, this next section I I think is the hardest section. God be with us, let's see how we do. Okay? So at the end of this, the results of proper exegesis and hermeneutics is building for us a right understanding of our convictions, our persuasions, and our opinions. All three of those things need to be basically Bible-centered, biblically driven, but we do have to realize that there's different levels of belief, different levels of things that we need to emphasize and focus on. The first is convictions, clear biblical teaching especially on matters of the gospel, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and salvation by grace through faith. These are issues for which we should be prepared to die. Those are conviction-level theological beliefs. They're clearly taught throughout the entirety of Scripture. They're clearly taught. If you pull out any one of those things, the gospel no longer works. Things fall apart. Those are things that we should be ready to die for. We also have... This isn't written down here, but we also have moral convictions. There are several things that are direct, clear, never do moral laws within Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Um, They're not situational, and they're direct. Again, we can go back to some of those we've already mentioned. Murder, drunkenness, lying, sex outside of marriage. Those are things that are always, always wrong. Uh, So those are moral convictions. Let's talk about persuasions. Now, just let's talk about convictions for one more second. Oftentimes, we think convictions are the things that we feel most strongly about. Notice, I did not once say that. (laughs) Not once. Uh, You might feel really convicted about something that happened in Samuel, uh, something that he said about him and his mom, and that's the thing that you think is most important to you. Great. It's not a conviction. 
Um, it's, you might have a strong persuasion, you might have a strong opinion of it, but convictions are things that are clearly, scripturally taught from cover to cover, based normally around salvation itself. Those are the conviction-level beliefs, the things that we die for. Persuasions are a little bit different. Persuasions should be subjects on which we have studied enough to develop a clear and informed view. Persuasions don't deal with the main themes of Scripture, yet generally should be confined to subjects about which the Bible speaks. We can feel free to argue our persuasions, but we should respect and cooperate with those who disagree. These are not issues that are essential for salvation. These issues do not need to divide us. Examples, your view on the millennium, okay? End times, what's gonna happen? When Jesus returns, when is it gonna happen? What is it gonna look like? And what exactly is gonna happen? Some of you might have really strong opinions on that, and some of you might think, well, I'll just see what happens when he gets here. Either way, that's a persuasion-level belief because we don't know with certainty, and the gospel doesn't hinge on it. It hinges on Jesus coming back, but what it's going to look like, what it's going to sound like, exactly what's going to be happening and when it happens is not the hinge point for the gospel. The role of tongues in the church. Some would say they're gone. You go down the road, you walk into a church, and they are speaking in tongues, and they would say they're actually not gone. I'm going to do it right now, and they speak in tongues. So this is a level that doesn't need to divide a church. It's a persuasion level, okay? People can have differing opinions and still hold to the core values of what Christianity is and what Jesus accomplished. I threw this one in here for Brian. Um, The age of the earth, okay? You might hold to it being 6,000 years old. You might hold to it being 6 million years old, 60 million years old, 60 billion years old. Whatever you hold to, you can still be a Christian, okay? A conviction is something if you, it's a level of belief where if I pull that belief out of your life, you're, you're not a Christian anymore. I can take any one of these things, pull it out of your life and change your opinion, and you're still a believer. Whether you think it's young earth, old earth, whatever, okay? It's great to discuss that. It tells us a little bit about our view of God, but it's not a conviction level belief. It's a persuasion level belief. Moral persuasions. So moral persuasions are drawn from principles. Moral convictions come from clearly stated things that are immoral all the time, no matter what. Persuasion level moral moral persuasions are drawn from principles, like the caffeine thing that we talked about. For some of you, you may actually choose not to drink caffeine. In the morning, when you're worn out and you're tired, you might say, God, instead of drinking that coffee, I'm going to rely on you to give me the strength I need to make it through the day. Now your, your spouse might say, good for you, and then boil a cup of coffee. I mean, make a cup of coffee. So, <clears throat> but that is totally a persuasion based upon a principle, okay? We can stand in the situation where we have disagreements, and it's totally an okay thing. It's not directly commanded from Scripture. It's determined by wisdom and your personal situation. Opinions. Our beliefs and desires or even wishes that may not be clearly taught in Scripture. They may legitimately differ for various believers. Examples, how long until Christ returns? So those books on trying to decide with whether or not when like, Europe like, became like a bunch of nations and everyone's like, well, clearly the, you know, that's where the end times are going to begin is because of that. You can have that opinion or you could choose not to have that opinion. Either way, it's fine. It's just 
an opinion. Uh, Bible translations. You might say, I'm going to read KJV until I see Jesus face to face. That's fine. But the person beside you might read something else, and that's fine too. It's just an opinion. It's an opinion level belief. Um, Style of music, dress, alcohol, chair setup. That's an opinion, okay? Now, you might have really strong emotions attached to that opinion, and that's totally fine. But it really, like it or not, is just an opinion. Did Adam have a belly button? Okay. You might have a really strong feeling that he did have a belly button. Yes, he did. Okay, great. I don't even care to argue with you about that. Um, So that's an opinion level belief. All right. So what happens when we treat persuasions or opinions like convictions? In my opinion, that's when we start heading towards divisions that don't need to happen. That's when people walk away from churches when they don't need to walk away. The problem is we get mixed up on what's a conviction and what's a persuasion. Does emotional intensity, does emotional intensity or connection to the topic determine its level of importance? No, it doesn't. It can be super important to you, super important. But the question is, does salvation depend upon it? If the answer is no, then it's your persuasion. And it's great to have a persuasion, but it's your persuasion. A summary on the next page. A conviction is a belief that is central to the Christian gospel itself. A good test to see if a belief should be classified as a conviction is to ask, if I remove this belief from my theological system, would I still leave the essential claims of the gospel message intact? If the answer is yes, then that belief, no matter how firmly I believe it or how strongly I feel about it, probably should be classified as a persuasion. Okay, let's... Let's have a little fun with this. All right, let's, um, let's talk about convictions and persuasions. So this is a cliff. And let's say, well, that's cliff. That's cliff right there on the top of the cliff. And <clears throat> when we're talking about moral convictions, there are certain things that are clearly wrong all the time. The situation doesn't matter. It's just, it's wrong. Here are some of those things. One would be drunkenness. And, okay, (laughs) it's on there, drunkenness. Uh, Here's another one. In fact, this is usually paired with drunkenness. Gluttony. That is a sin, by the way. That is a sin. Sometimes we ignore that one, but that is just as much as alcohol, just as much as drunkenness. Um, and then we'll go with the, the no sex outside of marriage. I asked um, Josh, our middle school guy, just to make sure it was okay to say that in here. And he said, yes, middle schoolers are aware that married people have sex. So I went ahead and wrote that in there. So <clears throat> no sex outside of marriage. If you didn't know that, I just want to let you know, no sex outside of marriage, middle school kids. Okay, so this is the cliff. And we do not want to walk off that cliff because that is clearly sin. Every single time, that is sin. So in wisdom, wouldn't it make sense for us to say, well, let's just, let's just back it up. Don't live on the edge of the cliff. Just back that sucker up. All right? So instead of living on the edge of the cliff, let's back it up and live off the edge of the cliff. So what that might look like is I'm only going to have three drinks. That's my limit. That's not drunk for me. I'm not referring to me, just this in general me. Um, 
Three drinks is my limit. I haven't got, I'm not drunk, but I'm not on the edge. Gluttony. I will limit myself to one half pan of brownies. <laughs> not more than half a pan. I always stop at half a pan. No sex outside of marriage. This could look like uh, I'm not going to spend any one-on-one -on -one time with someone of the other gender out on a Friday night. Okay, so that might be, that might be one way of being a little wiser than standing on the edge of the cliff. Someone else might back it up a little bit more and say, well, I'm only going to do one drink, I'm only going to eat a quarter pan of brownies, and I am going to follow the Billy Graham rule, which is the whole idea of I'm not going to be in an elevator alone with the other gender, I'm not going to be anywhere with the other gender, one-on-one, -on -one, ever. So it's just what's called the Billy Graham rule. Okay, so I'm going to live like Billy Graham. Let's back up some more. I'm going to be, I'm going to take another step and say I'm going to get farther away from the edge, and I'm going to have nothing to drink. Just, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to mess with it. Totally fine. I'm only going to have one brownie. That's my limit. Uh, I will... I'll have no, and you know these people, I'll have no eye contact. <laughs> I will awkwardly shift away as I see someone of the other gender approaching me. <clears throat> in the last church I was in, there were a bunch of seminary students, and they were the most awkward bunch of guys you'll ever see. All of them desperately wanted to find a wife, but they wouldn't look a woman in the eye. So it just made the whole process awkward and confusing for both genders. Um, so, but this is an option. Now, you could go farther. You could say, I'm going to live in a monastery. You could go farther here and just say, I'm only going to eat vegetables. You could go farther here and say, Wh whatever that is, okay? <laughs> I, I won't eat barley. So wh whatever you need to do to get farther. Okay, so let's take, let's take person A. Person A. Person A says, Based upon these things, I don't want to be on the edge of the cliff. I'm going to live here. I'm going to choose that line there. But I really like brownies. So I, I'm not going to drink, but I'm totally fine with a half pound of brownies. So I'll be a little closer to there. And I'm, I mean, you can't say anything bad about Billy Graham, so I'm going to live there. Okay, so this the purple might be one person. Great. And that person has total freedom to make all those choices. They do. This person... It lives a little differently. He's like, three drinks, I'm good. Okay, so I'm going to live, and I, three drinks are fine. But I care about my health a bunch in terms of body fat, so I'm only going to have one brownie at a time, and I want to be awkward, so I'm not going to look at anybody in the eye. <clears throat> okay, so... Okay. Now, <laughs> now, we're laughing at these people, but all of us are you know, falling somewhere on these lines because no one wants to fall over the edge. So we're kind of picking where we are. Here's where it gets tricky. God gives you the freedom to live in these gray areas and to make choices that are best for you. He really does. You have the freedom to make those choices. You don't have the freedom to go off the edge of the cliff, but you also don't have the freedom to be this guy judging this guy. Or this guy judging that guy. That's where we start going the wrong direction. So if God's given us some freedom there, we're not allowed to take it away from people by judging one another. Okay? So you can choose your position and you can enjoy your position. This over here, this is clear teaching. Do not go off the cliff. 
where you land on these lines is unclear teaching because you have some freedom to make different choices. Okay? This is conviction level. This is persuasion level. So that's the difference. Uh, but let's throw in some more like conviction level stuff. We are called to a couple things. We are definitely called to unity and peace with one another. We're called to that. So these are persuasions that we might have, but this is bigger than persuasion. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we are called to unity and peace with one another. So even if we land in a different place than someone else, in freedom, we choose unity. We choose peace with one another. That's another clear teaching of Scripture that helps us inform how we live in this gray area. Another piece, and this is a hard one. We're called to live in community with one another. What does that mean? Why would I say that? One discussion the Bible has in the book of Romans is what about the weaker brother? Uh, and I've heard this said, and this is, this is a good way of thinking. If, if I drink, if I chose to have a drink, and it could cause someone that I know to stumble into drunkenness and go over the cliff, it's better for me just not to have a drink. And that's a choice you could make. That's totally fine. Totally fine. But here's another side of it that I think maybe we forget about. I could choose to never have a drink, and perhaps the younger believer or a believer from a different background comes in, and they see no one's willing to have a drink. All of a sudden, their thought is, is everyone judging me? Am I doing things wrong? What's wrong with me? Am I reading scripture incorrectly? So we can poke the guy in the eye who could struggle with drinking too much. We also poke the guy in the eye by potentially having him feel judged, someone who does drink a little bit. It, it can go either direction. My suggestion is we stop assuming. We're called to live in community. What that means is you don't wonder if by you having a drink it could cause someone else to stumble. You ask them. If you're spending time with people and you're living life with a group of people, ask each other. Ask each other. Find out. Get to know one another. If I have a drink, brother, would it be hard for you? No. Have a drink. I will. Or if we talk to someone else and we say, what would happen if I had a drink with you? And they said, you know what? I have a terrible history with that. If you wouldn't mind uh, not having a drink, that would help me out. Absolutely. I would definitely not have a drink. Don't assume. Go deep with one another. Get to know one another. Live in community. Ask questions. Don't assume that you're the stronger brother and that's the weaker brother. It is very possible that sometimes this is the more spiritual guy, not this person. Don't make the assumption, because you really don't know. I've lived in different places where I've seen some incredibly spiritual people who live here and very immature people that live here. I've been in other places where very spiritual, mature people live here and immature people live here. You just can't judge people. You can't know. You have to let gray areas be gray. So we uphold unity and peace. We live in community. We don't make assumptions. We ask questions. We find out what's best for one another, and that's how we choose to live. And finally, we're called to humility, and we're called to grace, which means that we're always willing to do what's best for the other person, and we're called to love them no matter where they land here. So we can't take the unclear position and have it dominate. These are not convictions. This is a conviction. These are clear teachings that we're called to live by. This is clear. This is a gray area. If churches can buy into this, less and less churches will split. 
more and more people will go deeper with one another and love each other, even if they're very different from one another. All right? I'd love to say, does anybody have any questions, but I'm not going to ask that question. There's too many of you, and we'll be here all night. Um, I'm going to leave that up there for a little bit. Afterwards, if you want to ask me some questions, I'm happy to ask questions. My only goal in that is that we love each other well, and we let the Bible speak for itself. We don't need to draw fences and lines where the Bible didn't draw fences and lines. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Jesus knew what he was doing when he fully inspired his words. All right. So we have a little bit more to go. We will definitely be done by nine. We're going to go through the next bunch of pages really quickly. Developing a plan of action. The question you always want to be asking yourself is, where do I want to be in knowing God's word five years from now, ten years from now? If you don't have a plan to get there, you probably won't get there. Knowing God's word doesn't happen by accident. It happens with intentionality. So we need to be intentional in having a plan. Here are some things that I've tried, some of these things I've heard of, and I've seen other people do, that I'm going to suggest to you as options for moving forward in trying to dig deeper into God's word as a self-feeder, as someone who goes after it in your one-on-one time with God. Here's a little outline of what we're going to go through. One is an overview of Bible study methods, and these are basically reading through things. Let's walk down the table together. All right. So I'm going to hold this one up, and supposedly, this will get up on the screen where you can see what it is. Magic? Magic? Magic. Okay, so this is 30 Days um, to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. This is a great tool. Within like a month, you get a really good idea of what's going on in the whole Bible. It is really well done. If you just want to go at it hard for a month, this is a great tool to use. Other option, you just start reading through God's word. Just start reading through the whole thing. Uh, another option, <clears throat> and here's a plan. This how to read the Bible in a year. This is really well done. If you just want to just get through the Bible and work through it in a year, this is a way you can just check off or highlight each one as you accomplish it. There's also a thing called a chronological Bible. The Young Professionals group is going through it right now. It actually lines stuff up in the order that it happened. Some of the psalms were written during battles found in 1 Samuel. How fun to take that psalm out. As you're reading the battle, you can go in and see David's heart and what he's struggling with in the middle of that battle by reading the psalm along with it. The chronological Bible does that for you. It's a really neat way to read God's word. So those are simple ways to read through scripture. Let's talk about thoughtful ways to read through scripture. Uh, Do you have a bag with you? Do you see all the goodies in your bag? These cards, okay? You got one of these pens. I almost always have one of these pens with me. It's a four-color pen. Uh, I mainly carry it around because it, I mean, it makes me cool. People love talking to me because I have this pen. I've become much more popular since I've started taking it with me everywhere I go. With that pen, instead of just reading God's word, I slow down enough, if I'm in the New Testament, I take my New Testament card, okay, and I use my purple pen first. You have a purple pen in your bag, so you can do this. I use my purple pen, and that's my exegesis color. So I'll go through a book 
in the New Testament, like Colossians, and I had this laid out here if you want to come up and see it afterwards. I use my purple pen to circle who wrote the letter, Paul, boom, to who, Colossae, boom. What's going on with the Colossians? I make sure I mark all of that. Epaphras, who's Epaphras? Well, he's our beloved bondservant. Why do you write this? For this purpose, verse 29. I can quickly, as I go back to my color-coded Bible, find out why Colossians was, was written and just figure out all the exegesis, all the original purpose of the author that was mentioned within the book quickly by just looking at my purple pen. Isn't that wonderful? I'm holding this up for you. I don't know why I'm holding this up. So <clears throat> um, I'm going to put that down. Uh, my blue pen, it's just like my general notes. If I just have thoughts I want to put on the, on the sides, I'll just write on the sides. I love Bibles that have a single column. I'm going to hold this up for you. I love the single column, and I love having the side margin so I can write stuff in. <clears throat> I also like thick pages. So that's an old Bible, but here's the one I carry around. I carry this around. This isn't to try to look spiritual. Like, I don't carry this big Bible around to look spiritual. I carry it around because the pen doesn't leak through the page. So it just ends up being a really big book. But I love that. So I can work on it, and it doesn't bleed through the page, and I can take notes. That's what my blue pen is for general notes. My red pen is for theology. Every doctrine that's in there, I will circle it, mark it, and write it in the margin. Every time I learn something about Christ, I underline it and write Christ in the margin. Angels, underline it, angels in the margin. Demons, underline it, demons in the margin. So when I'm done, I can go back through that book of the Bible and see every place where I wrote down Christ. And I can have a study of Christ in Colossians, a study of Christ in in the book of Luke, a study of the Holy Spirit in the book of Luke. I take my green pen, and every time I learn about God the Father, I make sure I use my green pen to mark that. So I can do a study of just looking at my Father through the book of Romans, just staring at my Father, meditating on Him by just looking at the green marks after I've gone through it. Black in the New Testament for me is me marking everything about the church and ministry. Church and ministry. So in Colossians, as soon as I get to chapter 2, it kicks in Paul talking about ministry. It all turns to black for me. So I can quickly, if I want to learn about discipleship or evangelism or the church, I just find everything underlined in black, and I start reading it. I quickly get, I remember everything that I learned about ministry, the church, evangelism, discipleship, from what's in black. It's a great way to thoughtfully read God's Word, and then your Bible becomes this incredible resource for you. So if if Matt calls me on a Saturday night and says, Mike, I'm sick, can you fill in? I'm not going to like that phone call, but I can go into the Bible, pick a chapter where it's color-coded, and I can quickly remind myself of what that was about, and I'm set up very quickly to be able to teach. Now, it might not be very good, but I'll be able to quickly teach and tell you what it's about, because I've color-coded it so I understand I know what's going on in each chapter of each book. I always color-code. Like, I just... I color code everything now. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that. Um, but like all these books, like when I read them now, I just color code all of it. It just makes my, my books resources that I can go back to and use quickly and efficiently and effectively, which is really important to me. Okay, so reading thoughtfully. <clears throat> color coding. And then there are examples on the next two pages. I gave you an example out of my Bible from Psalm 56 and out of Colossians, and there's copies of the cards at the top. You don't have to do it the same way I do. Do it completely different. If you like orange, get crazy. Use orange. I mean, do whatever you want. This is just what has worked for me over the years. I've kind of concluded that this works for me, so I've stuck with it. You do what's good for you. You do you, all right? You do you. 
Uh, e, single page overviews. Uh, I also like doing this. Uh, I'll just take a book of the Bible and try to put it all on one page. Okay, and I gave you examples of how to do that. Next page. So there's an example of Psalm 89 all on one page. Okay? Psalm 89 all on one page. There's an example of it. No matter what method you choose to do, here's a suggestion. Always take away a spiritual nugget for you to chew on and to meditate on and to think about all day long. Whether you're going super deep into the study word by word or you're just flying over the trees and doing an overview study, grab something to take with you during the day. Always have a spiritual nugget to chew on, to meditate on, to cause you to think about God throughout the day, no matter what you choose. All right. So those were basic overview ways of reading the Bible. Number two, advanced overview of the Bible study methods. A book a month club. I've never done this, but I think this is a great way of doing it. You take one book of the Bible, you spend a whole month in it. First week, exegesis week. First week is you go through with your purple pen and you find out everything that you can about the historical situation, what's going on in the book, and you learn and you learn and you learn. Week two, hmm, week one is just overview week. Week two is exegesis week. I just got really excited to say exegesis. See, that happens. Week two is exegesis week. Week one, you just let the book wash over you, okay? Just wash over you. Read it and read it. Week two, go deeper, find out what's going on exegesis. Weeks three and four, you apply it. What's the word for application? Good job, hermeneutics. Come on. What's the word for application? Thank you so much. Hermeneutics. Okay. After five years of doing this, you've studied the whole Bible. 66 books, five years, one a month, you're done. Amazing. Surveys. Let's, uh, let's take another walk. So another idea is you grab one of these surveys or introductions to the Old Testament or the New Testament. I do have these listed in the bibliography in your book. Uh, these are a great way to read these while you're going through the New Testament. You might say, I'm just going to read the New Testament. Great. As I do, I'm going to read everything about Matthew in this book as I read Matthew. This just takes you deeper in each book of the Bible. So this is considered a New Testament introduction or a survey. Those are great. Another option, and this might make some of you nervous, but you don't need to be, grab a systematic theology book. If you want to quickly understand how the whole Bible works together, a systematic theology book will do that for you. I have several examples up here. This is a guy named Henry Theason. If you have a background in theology, this is a dispensational point of view. If you don't know what that means, that does not matter at all. Uh, but that's what this book is. I'm going to set that up here. Millard Erickson is a great one. This is a Baptist point of view. There are some differences. Not huge, but there are some differences. Here's a guy named Wayne Grudem. He's semi-reformed. Yeah, semi, semi-reformed. Whether you know what that means or not, it doesn't matter. But this is also another great one. Louis Burkhoff. Louis, he's reformed, okay? He's not dispensational, he's just reformed. This might land a little bit more in the Presbyterian world uh, and in some Baptist worlds, but this is also a great one. Don't just read one. Like, after you've got one down, read something else. It's really helpful to see different points of view on doctrines, theology, and scripture. Don't just assume that he's got everything right or he's got everything right. It's good to look around. Here's another great one. 50 core truths 
of the Christian faith. This one just came out this year. It's a guy named Greg Allison. Uh, Matt and I got to serve with him back in Louisville. He was one of the elders with us. In the winter, I think Matt's going to teach this book. We're going to go through all 50 core truths. This is another systematic theology book. If you come up here and check it out, these are other books about theology that are a little smaller that might not be as intimidating. I'm not going to go through all those. J.I. Packer, some different guys like that. These are also really good if just you know you don't want a big book. Systematic theology. It's great to read that as you're going through God's word. It'll just kind of make it all come together. It'll make it all make sense. When it says systematic theology, it takes all those red verses that say Christ, puts them all in a chapter. All the ones that say angel on the side of your Bible puts all those in a chapter. It just does a lot of the work for you. So you start getting to know doctrines and get to know things very, very quickly. In-depth Bible study methods. I've still got seven minutes. I've got so much time. All right. Semi-inductive. So if you flip to where at the top it says a semi-inductive study of the Bible, what you're going to have there is a list of questions. So if you pick a passage of Scripture and you answer all those questions, that's considered a semi-inductive study of the Bible. It's pretty in-depth. It's semi-inductive because some of the work has been done for you through asking the questions. If you come up here, I have a bunch of Old Testament semi-inductive studies that you can look at just to see examples. Zeo, Christ-centered hardcore, that's a heavy metal band from when I was in, in high school. It's Christian. That's when I did these, just so you know my background, and that's what that is. Uh, an inductive study of the Bible, if you go to the next page, is where you start, where you start going really in-depth. So here's an example. This is 1 John. Okay, this is just a study that I did in 1 John uh, where I went through like every single word. My wife and I lived in Mexico as missionaries for a year. The entire year I just studied 1 John, which was great. I knew it inside and out. One of the negatives of an inductive study is you start to forget everything else in the Bible because you spend so much time in one book. Uh, so you can look through this if you want. I lived in Mexico. I didn't really have a computer, so I had to write everything by hand, and that's it's a mess, but that's what it is. Uh, as you start going deeper into these things, and these are some other examples to look at um, of different studies that I did, and some of these are listed in there, <clears throat> you're going to start collecting for yourself some commentaries. There's that one-volume commentary that I showed you, but you're going to find with the semi-inductive and inductive studies, you might want to go a little deeper. I have listed for you some of the different commentary series that you should check out. One of them that I mentioned is the Tyndale commentary, ser- commentary series. Up here, I have a bunch of commentaries on Luke. So as we studied Luke, I had to read different commentaries to prep the study guide for you guys. To do that, I spent some time in the Tyndale one, which is a great commentary for anyone. Any books in this series are good, solid commentaries that anybody can read. It's only twice as long as Luke. It's a really doable book. Some of them start getting a little more intense. This one's a little bit bigger. This is the New American Commentary. This is also listed in your book. I just want you to be able to see what it is. So when you look at your book and you come up here and you check this out, this is what it looks like. This is a very readable commentary. Anybody can enjoy this one. That storyline starts to change. So as we go to the Pillar Commentary series, I love this commentary series, but it is a little more difficult. This is more rigorous. He'll spend a lot of time debating what some of these other commentators say and agrees with them and disagrees with them. This is a little bit harder commentary, but some of you might really enjoy this. Uh, These other two are very difficult, but for some of you, you might be ready for it. If you're not sure, talk to me about it. This commentary is just on Luke 1, chapters 1 through 9, and there's another one that's bigger 
for the rest. It's wonderful, but it takes a lot of work. Um, thankfully, I do this for a living, so I have more time to do it than you do, but <clears throat> it's a wonderful commentary. So if you want to go deeper, I would encourage you to check out the different examples of these different series up here on the table. I think that's about it. Let me just make sure I didn't miss anything huge. I've got three minutes. What should we do for three minutes? So in the back, there's some glossaries. There's one glossary. There's one glossary. Uh, And I have listed all the commentaries for you and some recommended resources. So I just closed my book. Uh, So again, our heart behind this class, as as well as all of our classes, is that you fall more in love with Jesus and you fall more in love with the people around you, and that you live your life on mission for the sake of others. That's what the big story of the Bible is. God loves you so much that Jesus died on the cross for you in your place that you might know him and live life with him and be transformed by him. It's an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing, and that's what God's word does in our lives. It transforms us to be more like Jesus. That's the purpose of me encouraging you to get into God's word and giving you the tools to do it correctly. Again, the stuff in that book should be helpful. Go back and reread it. That how to study your Bible for all it's worth is a great next step to go deeper with it. Or talking to me and getting more ideas and more information. Uh, This is the type of stuff I would love for you to take back to your community group and talk about and discuss and go deeper together. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to hang out up here for a while. If you have any questions, I might not be able to answer all of them. Many of them I probably won't be able to, but... We love you. This is a great start to our core classes. The next one's coming in September. What we're going to do is we're going to offer a class that's going to last for 10 weeks. The next class is coming. It's going to be on the gospel. It's going to be very in-depth. Matt and I are going to teach it. It'll be on Thursdays. We'll offer one class really early, you know, before you have to go to work. Another one, probably around 9 o'clock or whenever moms drop off kids and they just want to swing over here, we'll offer a class then. We'll offer another at lunch, another one in the evening. So if you know way ahead of time, which is what I'm allowing you to do is in a way ahead of time, about mid-September, start setting aside some time on Thursday. We'll start working through that, 10, that 10-week that ten class. It'll be a big book. There'll be a couple additional books you'll be reading alongside of it. And it'll be fun to go deep with you as we just learn more about how much God loves us and what Christ has accomplished for us. Thank you for coming. We're so glad you're here. Lord willing, it was beneficial. Let me pray us out. God, you are so good. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it was fully inspired by you. We seek to learn it and understand it correctly, God. It's so easy to go in there and to get things misconstrued. The enemy wants us to take your word and to warp it and to understand it incorrectly and apply it incorrectly to our lives and teach it incorrectly. But God, give us the tools to know your word well and to fall in love with it and to fall in love with you. Allow us to take seriously the time we spend in your word. Give us a plan. Give us a vision for where you'd like each of us to be a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, in our knowledge of your word and our love for you. God, move us forward, transform us to be more like you. We love you, and we're thankful for your presence here with us. Uh, God, bless these people as they go out to their cars and hang out this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all for coming.